Let's start off by looking at uh, a summary of last week. This is session three. It looks like a lot of you have been here for the first first couple of sessions. We've got a couple of the Grams are here for the first time. I don't know if anybody else is for the first time or not. But anyway, just to kind of summarize uh, last week, the first week we talked about the importance of the Trinity, how it affected uh, the gospel, our prayers, our worship, and things like that. Last week we talked about the uh, some of the objections that are thrown out against the Trinity, the fact that, and we explained how it is not an inherent contradiction, that the, the biblical data does in fact present us with a triune God, and we went over a number of verses, had a handout last week, talked about how in fact the Trinity is a solution, not a problem, and the reason we say that is because if you take all the scriptural, if you deny the Trinity, you're left with some inexplicable contradictions and, and uh, complications in Scripture. Uh, the Trinity actually gives us a way to hold all the data intact and be true to the Scripture. So it's a solution, not a problem, and we talked about that last week. And finally, just to say again, our God subsists in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or you could say our God exists in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, as we get ready to move on to tonight's uh, material, I, I would like for Emil, please, to open us in prayer. Amen. Thanks, Emil. Okay, tonight, for our third session, we're going to be looking at the historical development or some background that will give us insight into the motive for the Nicene Creed, the motive for coming up with the Necessity for the Council at Nicaea, the first ecumenical council where the, for the first time, the, a formal statement or a formal description of the Trinity from an Orthodox standpoint was laid down. So we're going to look at some background there. Tonight we're going to talk about the charge that the Trinity was invented in the 4th century and the early church knew nothing of it. That's a common objection that's brought out. One of the classic Unitarian criticisms we talked last week about, they say the Trinity is not a word that's used in the Bible. The Trinity is an illogical, contradictory concept. The early church knew nothing of it. And then we're going to look at that today. But to answer this, we're going to get into some of the historical background. To make the claim that it was not invented till the 4th century and the early church knew nothing of it is just a misunderstanding of the development and a misunderstanding of the historical context. And we're going to go into some of that tonight. Early patristic writings clearly demonstrate a sense of the Trinity both implicitly and explicitly prior to the Creed of Nicaea in 325 A.D. I'm going to have some quotes to follow. But what I thought we might do is answer the question, what are the patristic writings? And who are these guys I'm going to give you some quotes from? Generally, they were influential Christian theologians, some of whom were eminent teachers and prominent bishops over the different provinces and major towns throughout Christendom at the time. They're called the anti-Nicene Fathers, anti meaning prior to or before the Council of Nicaea. 
They wrote from about 100 A.D. all the way up until the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. These are the Antionicene fathers, and I'm going to be quoting from some of them. Their writings, called the Antionicene Fathers, is available in ten volumes, actually available online if you're so inclined for your reading pleasure. Right. You can get them online in English or if you prefer. (laughs) Anyway, believe me, I didn't dig through those to come up with these quotes. But I do want to show you how from the time of the apostles and the apostolic fathers, which were the first writings after the apostles, all the way up through that period of 225 or so years, there was ample evidence that the idea of the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity, followed right on the heels of what we saw last week from the verses where, especially where some of the Prayers of Paul always addresses the three, how we talked about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from the baptismal formula in Matthew 28. And so these quotes pick up right from that kind of thinking. The first one I want to look at is Polycarp. And these aren't real popular names today, but if you're looking for a name for a newborn grandbaby, (laughs) Polycarp may be a good one. So he lived from approximately 70 A.D. to 155 and actually sat under the teaching of the disciple, the Apostle John himself. And this is a quote from him. O Lord God Almighty, I bless you and glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom be glory to you with him and the Holy Spirit both now and forever. An implicit kind of reference to the Trinity. Justin Martyr, from who you get the name Martyrs, those who die for the faith, lived from about 100 to 165 A.D. He was a Christian apologist, and this is his a quote from him talking about the words that are used in baptism. He says, For in the name of God, the Father and Lord of the universe, and our Savior Jesus Christ, And the Holy Spirit, they then receive washing with the water. So then they've taken the the formula from Matthew 28, and that's become a standard. We do it today. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Irenaeus lived uh, from 115 to 190. He sat under the teaching of Polycarp. And uh, he became a bishop and was a prominent writer. And he had this to say. The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. One God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and one Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God and the advents, in order that Christ Jesus, our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, every knee should bow. So to me, that's pretty clear evidence in these early years of the idea of the Trinity. And a a clear declaration that Jesus is God. And so 
we see that these kind of discussions and these kind of teachings are going on very early. Tertullian lived a little bit later, 160 to 215. He was from Carthage, so that's northern Africa. He wrote much in defense of Christianity, and he said this. And this is amazing to me. This is early, the words being spoken. We define that there are two, the Father and the Son, and three with the Holy Spirit. And this number is made by the pattern of salvation. Remember we talked in the first lesson about how the Trinity is the engine that drives the gospel? Our salvation is patterned after the Trinity. And that's what he's saying here. Which brings about unity and Trinity. Some say that's the first time the word Trinity was actually used as such. Interrelating the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are three, not in dignity, but in degree, not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in kind. They are of one substance and power because there is one God from whom these degrees, forms, and kinds devolve in the name the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Pretty clear. Declaring the Trinity in before 200 A.D., specifically. I find that pretty powerful. Novation of Rome, This is a, he wrote this around 250 A.D. The rule of faith demands that, first of all, we believe in God the Father and Almighty Lord, most perfect maker of all things. Get this. Also in the Son of God, Christ Jesus, our Lord God, but the Son of God. After this, to believe also in the Holy Ghost promised to the old, promised of old to the church, but granted in the appointed and fitting time. And he was right, the title of his treatise was On the Trinity. So he's writing a treatise on the Trinity way before the Council of Nicaea. Our Lord God, but the Son of God. Exactly. Pretty powerful. You have to admire the precision of their thinking. You do. It's really it's really profound and quite beautiful when you take some of these passages. And what we will what we will find is some of these very thoughts and words are what show up in the Creed of Nicaea, which was put down on paper and or papyrus in three twenty five AD. They're like a, you know, they're like a bunch of lawyers. I mean the wording is important they're hammering these things out exactly uh, against the background of people who are heretical. Exactly. A lot of these were written because ideas were popping up. And they're saying, wait a minute, that's not really right. Let me tell you about it. And they would write this kind of stuff. And it was done by a council. It wasn't done by one man. Right. No offense to them by comparing them to lawyers, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> But they're particular and they're, and they're careful in their wording. Origen, who's kind of a famous guy, uh, famous for, well actually Tertullian was too, famous for getting off in some <laughs> spurious areas of theology later in their lives, but Origen was a famous guy from Alexandria, and he says this, For if the Holy Spirit were not eternally as he is, and had received knowledge at some time, and then become the Holy Spirit, 
you can tell he's writing against some teaching. The Holy Spirit would never be reckoned in the unity of the Trinity. That is, along with the unchangeable Father and His Son, unless He had always been the Holy Spirit. So you can tell he's writing against someone that's saying, well, the Holy Spirit, uh, it's either a divine force or it came later or whatever. And so he's trying to put those kind of, those kind of thoughts uh, outside of what was considered orthodoxy. Gregory Thaumaturgus, that's a good Greek name, 270 A.D. There is one God the Father. There is one Lord, God of God, the true Son of the true Father, immortal and everlasting. And there is one Holy Spirit, having his existence from God, in whom is revealed God the Father and God the Son, a perfect trinity, not divided nor differing in glory and eternity and sovereignty, neither indeed this is important. It's important today. Neither indeed is there anything created or subservient in the Trinity. But the Trinity is ever the same, unvarying and unchangeable. Pretty powerful. So, if as the anti-Trinitarians maintain the Trinity is not a biblical doctrine and was never taught until the Council of Nicaea, then why do these quotes exist? They exist because they make these charges and they don't expect you to refer to the anti-Nicene fathers, I guess. The answer is simple. It was taught before the council. Now let's talk a little bit about the motives for development, which Don has already alluded to. The clarification and formalization of the church's Trinitarian theology was required because of interaction with these heretical ideas that were popping up in various places. Heretical teachings threatened the true, the, the orthodox understanding of the true nature of God and Jesus Christ, and it was essential to clarify that and have a faithful articulation of the gospel. So these, the effect of these uh, erroneous teachings, in their minds, that affects the gospel, like we were talking about earlier, about how the Trinity is embedded in the gospel. But we need to recognize, and this is something that I think most people don't, don't really think about, the ability to effectively combat heretical teaching was inhibited by the political environment at that time. So let's just review. I'm sure some of you are aware of this. But if we talk about the political conditions in the early church, we need to recognize that Christianity was illegal until shortly before the council. As a matter of fact, because of that, it was very difficult for official Christian groups to openly meet and discuss doctrine. Granted, they may get a few church leaders together in this province, or they may actually hold a local synod over in this province, but there was not the freedom to talk to bishops across Christendom, nor to discuss the fact that these guys are teaching this. Do you guys agree with that? You know, they couldn't go freely and talk. So we need to recognize that. Constantine's Edict of Milan in 313 A.D. finally made Christianity legal. Now granted, from the time of the Apostles, 
or from the time of Nero until the Edict of Milan, there were periods of severe persecution. There was kind of an ebb and flow. The next emperor would come in. There may be less persecution, but it's still illegal. And we see that in 313 A.D., Constantine made it legal. Well, guess what? Soon after, within 12 years, an open communication, the church decided to formally meet to clarify Orthodox teaching, and Constantine was petitioned to call, as emperor, to call a council of bishops across all known Christian communities. And that is what allowed the Council of Nicaea to come to pass at 325 A.D. So there's a reason there was this kind of this delay. Part of the reason was the political environment. Part of the reason was some of the questions hadn't been asked before. And when they're asked, when they were asked and they came up with answers, some of the answers were not right. And so that that kind of environment was going on. And finally, at this point, they're saying, hey, wait a minute. We've got to be clearer on our description of Orthodox understanding of God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, and be able to use that to put down and fence off error and false teaching. So, so that's kind of the bottom line. So next we're going to take a few slides to talk about the heresies. Believe me, there's a list of heresies, about 15, 16 different heresies, but I'm going to focus on the few that were prominent early and, the, and especially the ones that were causing the most trouble for the church. And that is uh, Gnosticism, whoops, Gnosticism, Monarchianism, which is, I'll, I'll explain what that means, but it really just generated two different heresies, related but different, Adoptionism and Modalism, which I'm going to talk about specifically, and then Arianism, which is the one that really caused problems. Okay? Gnosticism. How many of you have ever heard of the word Gnosticism? Yay. Gnosticism was around very early. It was around when the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John were writing. Because you see, some of the specific things they say appear to be obviously in reaction to Gnostic thinking and teaching. It was a dualistic kind of... uh, religion, if you will, or thought, teaching that matter is either evil or it doesn't exist. It's from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And those teaching it professed a special hidden or higher knowledge of transcendence that was arrived at by intuitive and experiential means if you had it within you to transcend into those areas of thought. The sad part about it is not only were they super spiritual, but it was a super spirituality that only some had. And you were expected to sit before them and listen to them tell you how things were. Also, this dualism between what is matter, which they considered evil or non-existent, 
and true spirituality allowed them to say, it really doesn't matter what you do in the flesh. And so they had this higher knowledge that was spiritual, but they would go out and, and live these these lives that just didn't make sense and you'd ask them about it and they'd say, well, the flesh doesn't matter. That's not that's really non-existent. What we do in the flesh isn't important. So you can see it. There's some of that stuff going on today. That kind of idea. I can live how I want. John? One of the implications of Gnosticism that was so contrary to Christianity was that they denied that God could take on a human form. It was inconceivable to them. In fact, as we see on this next point, the chief denial was the incarnation. Why? Because how could the divine logos be united to human flesh matter? No. Can't happen. So they now are in the position of having to define Jesus as a phantom or, or something else because he was not a human. He, was, he did not take on flesh. And along those lines, they de- developed their own Gnostic scriptures, their own, their own writings that they, would, that they would possess and teach from. And so consequently, the authority of Scripture just went bye-bye. So that's Gnosticism. There's more that could be said, but, but we won't spend much more time on it here except to say, as I mentioned before, that there's evidences in the New Testament that incipient Gnosticism was already around. And so when you read, for example, in uh, John 1.14, John is emphasizing that the Word became flesh. Listen to me, boys. It, came, it became flesh. And the Gnostics are going, no. Yes. And, and in 1 John 4, 2, he stresses this again, uniquely. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Whoa. He's got to be writing against some form of teaching that denied that an early form of Gnosticism. And then in 1 Timothy 6.20, Paul says, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. This special knowledge. Again, it seems to me he's writing against Gnosticism. Uh, one of the strongest verses against that is in Colossians where he talks about in him dwells the fullness of God in bodily form. Oh, amen, brother. I should have had that one up here. In, in fact, uh, I guess it's Colossians 2 or the Colossian heresy that Paul seems to be addressing. Some say, hey, look at that. That's got to be Gnosticism is the problem mixed in with with the teaching. So that's exactly right. Very good. Now let's take a look at this word monarchianism. I probably won't use it much after this. But 
from the word monarch, the Greek word for monarch, uh, they fiercely sought to protect monotheism, right? And we, we talked last week about how Christianity is fundamentally monotheistic, and these guys were too. So much so that they insisted that God was not only one in essence, but he was also one in personhood. They could not accept any idea of more than one person or subsistence in the Godhead. God is one person. He's the sovereign Lord, and there cannot be any other. So, like we talked about, uh, it's not a contradiction because God is one in one sense and three in another sense. He's one in the sense that he is one being, one essence and one nature, but he is three in another sense because this one God subsists or exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't take that. And it manifested itself in a couple of different forms, both of which were aiming at the same point. God is a single person. There can't be three persons in the Trinity. So let's look first at adoptionism. It emphasized again God is one being and one person. It teaches that Jesus was born as any other human. Look at the name adoption here. He was judged righteous enough to be adopted as God's son and granted a portion of the divine nature. But he was not God. The Holy Spirit, to these guys, was a divine force, not a person. Like the force be with you from Star Wars. I tell you, 50% of evangelicals today think the Holy Spirit is a divine force. The thing is, this adoptionism was condemned in the writings of the church fathers in 198 A.D. and again in 269 A.D. But the, the idea and some of that teaching continued in various sects. Modalism is the next one. And this is a good one because... I think there are people in the pews who, without thinking about it, are mental modalists. So, see if you can get get why. Again, God is one being and, we agree that, He's one being and one person. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are but three modes or forms of revelation. Okay? Not that there are three real persons, but there are three modes or forms of revelation. Sometime God, sometimes God manifests himself to us as the Father. Sometimes he manifests himself to us as the Son. Sometimes he manifests himself to us as the Holy Spirit. But it's the one person, God, who, who is just showing himself in these three different ways. And I have put the word manifest in uh, red at the request of Cliff Lopez, <laughs> who says the word manifest should wave a red flag. Now, I understand people can use that word without really thinking and without intentionally implying modalism, but he says that's, that's the word the modalists will use. He manifests himself in this way. 
or he manifests himself in that way. Now, Sabellianism is a form of modalism. And what made it a little bit distinct is because Sabellianism applied modalism in chronological order. The Old Testament Father God became the New Testament Son God, and at Pentecost he became the Holy Spirit God, or manifested himself in those ways. It's like in the Old Testament he wore one costume. From uh, the birth of Christ until the Pentecost, he wore another costume, and after Pentecost, he wore another costume. Yes, we don't say God died on the cross, but this kind of thinking would lead you to that. Tertullian, who we mentioned earlier in the quotes, condemned this uh, this heresy, if you will, in 2.13. But again, it, it continues today. So, kind of to explain what I've already said, in modalism, God is one divine person. And those are like the tragedy, Greek theater tragedy masks. He puts on one mask when he's the father, another mask when he's the son. But in Orthodox Christianity, we have one divine being who exists in three real, distinct persons, even though I've quibbled with the word person. Three subsistences. And again... The word manifestation is a is kind of a tell. So, if somebody uses that, say, now do you mean, now what do you mean when you say manifestation? You know, I think people think of God that way without realizing that that's a modalistic thinking. They think of one God, and they think of the Father, Son, and the Spirit as just different ways God shows Himself to us. But that's that's not right. Well. It's true that God is one being and there are three persons. And, and that's hard to get our mental arms around. But God the Son is not God the Father. Period. God the Father is not God the Holy Spirit. Period. And that's where they get off. So even though he says you can look at me and you can see the Father, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. That's all true. But there's a, still a distinction between the Father and the Son that needs to be maintained, and modalism doesn't do that. But Good point, though, Gordon. You're exactly right. I'm not familiar with it. Sorry, sorry about it now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the shack. Is that, is that the basketball player or what? <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay, the last uh, of these I'm going to talk about is Arianism. Arius of Alexandria, he rejected modalism. He said, that's not right. He didn't really adopt adoptionism, but he, he was influenced by it. Hmm, there's something to that. And he taught that the Father alone is without a beginning. Jesus was not God, but he allowed that he is an entity created by God in order that God might create everything else. So to him, 
Jesus Christ, the second, what we call the second person of the Trinity, was a created entity that God then used to create everything else. Pretty strange, huh? Here's a famous saying that people use to quote Arius. This is his bottom line. There was a time when the Son was not. He's the firstborn of creation. The first, well, the firstborn of creation, the scriptures say, right? Right. First in rank. Right. Firstborn son always had preeminence. Yeah. Christ has preeminence in creation. There's a little bit of modalism and Gnosticism. Right. Though. Good point. But think of that. That's the way to summarize Arianism. There was a time when the son was not. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, kind of hits you in the face. In his view, Christ was neither God nor is he man. Something in between. There's God. There's the sun, and then there's the rest of creation. So Arianism was a stubborn heresy. It was originally rejected at the Council of Nicaea, which we're going to get into the councils next week, but it was, it was rejected. There were words specifically put in there to rule out Arianism. But it continued in the Eastern churches and had many adherents. And so what you find is if you read about what these guys were doing between 325 and 381, which is the Council of Constantinople that finally put the nail in the Aryan coffin, uh, there were a lot of battles, a lot of political goings-on and guys being promoted and guys being bad-mouthed all over this deal about Aryan. And Arianism spawned uh, variations of itself. So there was the semi-Aryan guys, and then they they uh, they would exile the Aryans. Get out of here! You can't. You're not going to be part of the church anymore. And then these semi-Aryans say, "Well, if you word it this way, maybe they could agree to it. We could welcome them, welcome them back." And so there was all of these machinations going on for about 60 years. Very tumultuous time in church history from the Council of Nicaea for the next 60 years. Athanasius of Alexandria, he's, he rose up as the chief opponent of uh, Arius and Arianism. And if you look at his uh, birth date, he was about 27 years old when the Council of Nicaea took place. But he was well noted as a theologian at that early age. He was made a deacon of the church and secretary to the bishop of Alexandria and went to the Council of Nicaea as the bishop's secretary. And the bishop said, Athanasius, I think you better get up and present our thoughts on how we need to nail down this, how God and Christ are equally God and how we're going to say that. And so Arius at the age of 27 put forth these arguments that eventually carried the day. Now, Athanasius is, a, is kind of a strange character because he's, He's also nicknamed Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. There were several emperors during his lifetime, and he knocked heads with every one of them. He went from being exiled to being reinstated to being excommunicated by the emperor to be brought back in. I mean, the guy 
was, was in conflict his whole life. But he was, he was a great theologian. And he stood up against Arianism. Unfortunately, he died before the Council of Constantinople in 381, but his words were used at that time. And this just says what I mentioned, that it was more emphatically rejected at the Council of Constantinople in 381. And again, we'll look at these councils more specifically next time. So the task set before the church. Gnosticism was never really accepted. But it continued as false teaching in various places, various ways. And so you'll find writings against that type of false teaching continue even though it was officially condemned. Modalism also, as I mentioned, Tertullian condemned it in 213. The Bishop of Rome condemned the Sabellian variation in 262. But it also has continued in some sects. But the work begun in, at Nicaea in 325 was to clarify the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity and specifically denounce Arianism. So now I'm going to get away from the word charts and show you a picture. This is, it's not completely accurate, but it's good because it gives you a, an idea of the extent of Christianity's communities and influence at two different points in time. The dark blue is at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. By 600 A.D., less than 300 years later, the light blue. So you can see what a difference between 325 A.D. when it was in pockets. A lot of pockets scattered around. No wonder they couldn't communicate openly until they had an emperor who was saying, come together and would send, it, send the message across the whole Roman Empire. Come together and help us, help our bishops settle this. So, you know, here's little Athens and Corinth and here's Ephesus over here and there's Constantinople and, and right south down the road of 40 miles is Nicaea, where that first council will be held. Here's North Africa, Alexandria. Look over here, even Gibraltar, up here in parts of Italy. And another thing that's, that uh, happened at this early stage is, is the start of the monastic movement. And so the church would go build monasteries. And so they'd set up monasteries all over the place, and pretty soon little communities of Christianity started popping up in, in pagan areas at that time. But to me, when I saw this, I thought, wow, I don't think of, I don't, this is not in my mind when I think of the church in 325 A.D. But there it is. The Christianity of the world in the dark blue. That was it. J.I. Packer. Always a good guy to quote. We need to realize that false doctrine regularly starts with twisting the revealed truth of the three in one. And that, that is so true. The doctrine of Christ and the person of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity, that's the first things that get twisted and turned around and are denied in heresy. 
So at uh, 10 minutes till the hour, let me just summarize, and then we'll have a time for some questions and a little discussion. The early church fathers testified to the concept of the Trinity. I hope you'll agree. The political environment was a problem leading up to the council. The early church was moved to hammer out a doctrinal understanding because of that, those heretical teachings. And we just went over the prominent heresies at that time were Gnosticism, modalism, adoptionism, and Arianism. Any comments? Any questions? We'll open the, open the floor. Well, the church fathers used heresy in the sense of anathema. I mean, you can't, you can't be part of us teaching that and you're excommunicated, exiled, cursed for having that kind of teaching. Now today, in some ways I think it's unfortunate, and to, today we can't declare a false teaching a heresy. Why? We can't call the church together to agree. We can't declare anything a heresy. We got too many, well, better be careful. We got too many independent churches that teach whatever they want and nobody, they're accountable to nobody. Some are. You bet your bottom dollar, some are. All I'm saying is we talk about uh, false teaching or someone falling into error now, but we technically we can't call it a heresy because we can't call an ecumenical council to declare it such. That's just a fact of history. But be that as it may, in some sense, especially the different variations of Arianism, they thought they were just splitting hairs. Why don't you guys give up on this point and at least let us say this? And they said, no. And we'll talk about that next week. But once they, once they hammered out this description of the Trinity that we'll look at in detail next week, that was defined as orthodoxy. That was, if you were going to be a Christian, this is what you have to teach. And if you won't teach this, you're not a Christian. That's what it boiled down to. That's our church in 325 A.D. That's our church in 325 A.D. The Roman Catholic Church will come out of this. Well, another thing to point out is, as much as one might have against the Roman Catholic Church, they are dead right on the Trinity and have been since 325 A.D. They are orthodox in their doctrine of the Trinity. They are orthodox, as far as I am aware, in the doctrine of the person of Christ. They're unorthodox in a lot of other areas, but all I'm saying is we're going to see historically that through the 300s, 400s, and 500s, as all of these things regarding the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of Trinity were settled, that was the orthodox position that was accepted by the universal church at large. And those same doctrines are accepted by all Protestants. They were accepted in the Reformation. 
And the Roman Catholics believe the same doctrine of the Trinity that we do. As far as I can tell. The things I'm going to discuss in this class... Right, and, and there's plenty wrong with the Roman Catholic Church, especially after the Reformation. There's plenty of stuff wrong with it. I, I understand that. Right. Right, but but what's interesting is, as because of the Reformation, when the reformers were still trying to reform the church, they said not only no, but hell no, and went and did what was the Council of Trent, and took everything and nailed it down. And cursed everything the Protestants were saying. I I only know bits and pieces about the Mormon teaching. I haven't really studied it. I know they're gonna they, they would fall into some of these categories that we've talked about. Some of these heresies we've already talked about. You'll find in the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, Christians, Christian Science, Unitarians, right. Good comments. Anybody else? We talked about uh, in one of our earlier, I think it was in our first session when somebody asked the question, can someone who rejects the Trinity be a true believer? And we had some discussion about that. And I think, I think the consensus was it's obvious that we can come to Christ without full head knowledge of the Trinity. So what, what it boiled down to was Maybe we should look at it this way. Can a true believer reject the Trinity once he's, once he's confronted with it? And if you believe what, uh, what, we're gonna, what we're saying about the Trinity, and one of the things that Tom has said about the Trinity and the Scriptures, they are the sine qua non of Christianity. They are the that without which none, or without which not. If you don't have the scriptures, you, you do not have Christianity. If you do not have the Trinity, you do not have Christianity. So, there you go. Right. So, if you deny the divinity of the Son, you cannot be a Christian. Period. No, no, those aren't stupid questions. Those are, those are helpful. Not stupid at all. But but so yeah, uh, those who fall into false teaching, they can be saved. But there's certain false teachings that if if they adhere to those, you would have to conclude, see how you'd be saved. But we're not in the business of judging the souls of other people, right? Well, they say some say theology is not important, but the truth of the matter is everybody has a theology. Some of it's just pretty bad. Okay, thank you very much. Father, we thank you for this time. We, I hope that it was uh, edifying for those that were here. I hope it was honoring to you. I ask that you separate the wheat from the chaff uh, with those things that I've said. Take those kernels that may be true and, and impress them on our hearts and minds. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.